Welcome to What's Working in Washington on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Hi, I'm Jonathan Aberman. Coming up on today's show... Greater Washington is seeing more and more of those deals, and I think we should lay claim to them. Shouldn't shy away from the fact that it was almost an accident that we had a deal that was over $100 million. You know, we talk about Everfine, there was Tenable, there was, you know, if you count OneWeb, that was a huge deal. Think about what's happening in the world of technology. Everything is going online. So if we deprive people with disabilities, that accessibility, we take away their independence. When we started, um, it launched in February of 2017 at around 300 subscribers. And now, about five months later, we're almost at 10,000 subscribers. Welcome to What's Working in Washington. Today's show is brought to you by Montgomery County Economic Development Corporation, MCEDC, helping companies start, grow, and accelerate business in Montgomery County. The future starts here. Go to thinkmoco.com today. A special thanks to our sponsor, Eagle Bank. How do you get to be number one in the D.C. area? Eagle Bank did it by putting relationships first. They're flexible, involved, responsive, strong, and trusted. Eagle Bank's goal is your success. Our next guest covers the heartbeat of Washington business from his perch at the Washington Business Journal. He's business reporter Andrew Medici. He's a regular guest, and we're happy to have him here with us today. Andy, great to see you. Always a pleasure. Well, uh, let's start with this. You reported not so long ago, Stephen Fuller over at Mason Shar School has been continuing to produce some interesting numbers. What's going on with the local economy, according to Stephen? Well, Professor Fuller, who has been watching the local economy for decades, for as long as most people can even remember, is looking at the numbers and he doesn't find them encouraging. He's not saying that we're on the decline. What he's worried about is slowing growth. You know, in the top 15 metro areas across the country, we are the lowest. We are ranked last in terms of income growth per person. Uh, we're slipping behind in terms of affordability, in terms of high quality jobs. And that is what he's concerned about. He's worried if we don't do more now, we're going to find ourselves in a tougher spot down the road. That's certainly a theme that uh, he's been pursuing for the last couple of years. He's released various reports around uh, industrial clusters focused on certain things. Do you get the sense that his message is resonating with the business community yet? I think it's tough to be the bearer of bad news. And I think for a lot of people, they see new buildings going up, they see new businesses going in, and they don't see anything wrong. And when I asked Professor Fuller about this, he told me that it's clear in the numbers and starting to show in the numbers that there are some small problems that are growing into larger ones. So there's what people can see with their eyes, which is always very tempting. And then there's what the underlying data is beginning to show us, which is a slowing of growth in the region. What are his prescriptions for what do we need to do to, to uh, make this change? What he's most worried about is adding high quality, high paying jobs to the economy. The last few years, we haven't added as many of those ever since federal government stopped spending as much. So instead, we've seen a lot more hospitality jobs and retail jobs. They tend to pay less. Uh, they tend, And that, in turn, means that those people can buy less, can afford less in terms of homes. So what he's hoping is for us to make concerted efforts as a region to expand those areas of the economy that offer high-paying jobs. 
those business service jobs, those tech sector jobs uh, that are not related to the federal government. You know, you mentioned a bit earlier, and, and I think this has certainly been my experience watching Professor Fuller, you know, bringing bad news to the community here, it doesn't it doesn't play too well. Do you think that this region is uh, particularly hard on the contrary views? I think that it's hard to be the one person or the one of few people who say there's a problem. You know, money follows money and optimism for a lot of people is really what does it. You know, confidence and optimism, a lot of people base their uh, base their opinions on that. So I definitely think it's hard. I think he has an uphill road to climb in order to convince uh, a lot of people that there are underlying problems until those problems become more apparent. So let's move our attention away from economics and uh, the numbers to another set of numbers. Uh, you covered recently in the venture capital numbers for the quarter for the region came out and it was a very strong quarter. I think uh, it was probably one of the best quarters we've had in a while. Tell me uh, what your sense is of where the the market for financing growing businesses is right now. You're right. Greater Washington's had a great quarter, uh, more than $400 million in investments. And part of that is because we are seeing more than our share uh, historically. We're on path, we're on a tack to blow past a billion dollars in financing. And, you know, that's driven, that was driven in large part by the, by 190 million brought in by the education technology company, EverFi, which has been making great strides in the past few years. Yeah, we had Tom David. Uh, Tom Davidson on the show, and we've been following Everify. You know, you mentioned Everify. You mentioned 190 million out of the 400. When I've been looking at the venture numbers, Andy, what what concerns me is it seems that every quarter we have one big outlier deal. You know, Everify, you know, one web at the end of last year, which was a billion two, and really drove our number up for that quarter, and uh, Tenable and so forth. And when I look at the baseline, I see a market that's the tenth largest in the country, and and I'm I'm more of a glasses half full kind of guy when I look at this than you are, I think. Well, I like to think that maybe the glass isn't the right size, right? I think <laughs> that uh, it's tempting to dismiss these as outlier deals, these large these large deals, dismiss them and sort of look at the underlying numbers. And I hesitate to do that only because other regions don't. Silicon Valley doesn't dismiss their mega deals as outlying deals. Greater Washington is seeing more and more of those deals, and I think we should lay claim to them, shouldn't shy away from the fact that it was almost an accident that we had a deal that was over $100 million. You know, we talk about EverFi, there was Tenable, there was, you know, if you count OneWeb, that was a huge deal. Mm -hmm. But, you know, those were three in the last three quarters. So I would like to say, I would like to say that maybe we should make lay claim to those mega deals instead of uh, working to uh, see if, if they're sort of outlying numbers. After all, they were products of the ecosystem. And if we are trying to look and see what the ecosystem is doing, those mega deals uh, play a large role in terms of funding new businesses, building new entrepreneurs, and starting even more smaller businesses. I mean, speaking of the ecosystem, what I'm seeing now is that we seem to have a very good ecosystem and angel capital to start technology businesses. And once they reach the point where they're scaling, you can find the 10 to 20 million, $30 million rounds. I still see a huge problem in the businesses that have gotten past the beginning and need that two to three million dollars to scale up. Are you seeing any trends to change that? Well, that is one area, you know, that sort of seed to A round, depending on how you value it, you know, a few million dollars. That's always been sort of a struggle point for a lot of DC companies. And there have been more funds that have opened in the last couple of years. Uh, you know, Lavrock Ventures, uh, Next Gen Venture Partners has opened their own. And there will probably be a few more coming down the pipe. Now, is that enough? Probably not. And what we're seeing in exchange is a lot of regional funds coming in from North Carolina, from Philadelphia. And I do see a trend where some of those uh, venture funds see an opportunity in DC. Would it be nice to have homegrown funds investing in homegrown companies? Of course, 
But I think in the next couple of years, you will see a lot of regional players investing in those rounds in D.C. businesses. So last thing before I let you go, other than cybersecurity, where do you think that entrepreneurs should be planting their flags right now to gross and scale up tech companies? I think uh, in greater Washington, at least, there's a lot of emphasis on artificial intelligence, on machine learning, uh, using those to make some of those complicated and difficult processes easier, whether it's financial services, whether it's uh, programming. I also think that one area that DC doesn't get enough credit for, but it's slowly growing, is uh, virtual reality. We have uh, a small but growing number of startups that are using some of the technologies coming out of government, are using some of the technology that is evolving sort of on their own, and they're building virtual tools, virtual tool sets. And I think that's going to be a very fascinating area to watch. So are you optimistic for the next six months? The next six months? Yes. The next six years? Come again and ask me later. Well, you got to keep yourself employed, Andy. Let's be fair. <laughs> if the future was certain, I don't know how people would buy newspapers. There you go. Andy, as always, thanks for coming in. It was Andrew Medici, Business Report in the Washington Business Journal. It's a pleasure. We're here with Tony Cancelosi. He is the CEO of Columbia Lighthouse for the Blind, an organization that is helping and has been helping people in this region for 117 years, providing some very innovative approaches. And innovation is a big thing for all of us these days. Tony, first of all, thanks for joining us. And let's start with Columbia Lighthouse for the Blind. It's a great organization. Tell us a bit about it. Well, the Columbia Lighthouse for the Blind was formed in May 17, 1900. And it was formed by individuals who were caring about children who were losing their sight or have lost their sight. And they felt that, what are we going to do with our children when we pass on? We need to give them independence. We need to give them skills so they can fend for themselves. And jobs were the initial caring part of the formation of the Columbia Lighthouse for the Blind. And you could hear all the stories you want about caning chairs and uh pot scrubbers, making pot scrubbers, and menial kinds of jobs. As we evolved since 1900, we've now come into a world of technology, utilizing technology to give people who are visually impaired and blind and deafblind and other people with disabilities technology that they can use to communicate, to navigate, and to share among with other individuals that are sighted. So we're, com we're coming to a point where there's common ground. It's interesting to me that there have been a lot of conversations about the digital divide from a standpoint of access to broadband for less uh, uh, wealthy regions or access to computers in many cases. But this sounds to me that we're now facing a different type of digital divide, which is the sighted or the pe people who are not disabled technology can make things a lot more immediate. But so, for example, booking a reservation in a restaurant. Well, this this is a very topic that we are working with. Through technology and assurance of accessibility, we have been working where there's a 508 compliance that the federal government follows. And this is something that government must have so people can access their websites that are visually impaired or blind or people with disabilities. So we've taken on that charge and won some grants, and we've created a way to look at websites with a special tool that we have and make them accessible for people with disabilities. So that what we're doing is guaranteeing 
person that's visually impaired or blind or deafblind or any other disability to access that restaurant, just like you and I, going online. Because if think about what's happening in the world of technology. Everything is going online. Everything's being accessible. Mm-hmm. Now, everything you do today, you can make reservations, you can do whatever you want online, order you know, Amazon, whatever you want to do. So if we deprive people with disabilities, that accessibility, we take away their independence. We absolutely do. It, the other thing that strikes about technology, uh, I've had a number of conversations recently with, say, Hopkins uh, Applied Physics Lab. You know, they're working on technology now with Facebook to do thought conversion to text and various things around neuroprosthetics. The Navy Research Lab a number of years ago uh, developed an artificial retina that goes in the back of the eye. Oh, absolutely. That helps blind people actually see for the first time. Uh, and does and are you starting to see technology not just from standpoint of helping accessibility, but also actually help bring back capacities or take advantage of people's uh, inerrant talents and bringing them into the workforce in new ways? Absolutely, because what we're trying to create are job skills that we can create through using technology to train individuals who are visually impaired and blind or deafblind. Uh, we have a program uh, called Digital Data Scanning where we can scan documents with people who are visually impaired and blind. We have the skill and the technology to train them to do that. Mm-hmm. And, but now that creates a job for them. And that job will pay more than double the minimum wage. So we're creating the opportunities and not giving them uh, what I would call the lack of opportunity. We're giving them the opportunity. So technology is a very important part. But the fundamental basis of what we do, we have to give them the interpersonal skills the training skills, the independent living skills, and the orientation and mobility. So we've got to build the base so once they have that skill. So when someone loses their sight, if you if you were sighted and now you lose your sight, you have to relearn how to do everything you were doing before. We provide those services, independent living skills, orientation, mobility, uh, and computer training. Uh, I'll give you a quick example. One of my friends, a dear friend, said to me one day, I need to talk to you. My executive assistant is going blind. I don't want to lose her. What do I do? Well, we came in and put a whole workstation together with technology, and she's still working there. That's a great story. I love hearing stuff like that. I don't think we hear enough of it. And I wonder, does it frustrate you? Because it frustrates me that in areas like dealing with the aged, disabilities like blindness and others, People don't want to talk about it. It's almost like it's just we live in this constant. Is it that people just want to deny that bad things happen? Or what is it? Well, I think we all want to believe that everything is perfect. Everything is well. Everything is going to be good the next day. And the reality is that we don't know what the next day is going to be. So we treat it like the day before. So for us, we're trying to give people the ability to know what's out there for them to access And the technology, I'll give you another example. We've been working with uh, Metro to come up with a way for people who are visually impaired and blind to navigate Metro. Uh, We've done 11 stations so far. Now we're installing what we call iBeacons. And I don't know if many people know what iBeacons are, but these these little things that uh, Starbucks use and a couple others. And they send out messages to your, your, your iPhone saying, come in for a and have a hot cup of coffee. What we're doing is we're navigating people through the metro system so they can get on at Gallery Place, get off at the ballpark, go to the ballpark, go to their seat, and then be able to navigate to the men's room, ladies' room, or to a food stand. But the bigger part of that is evacuation. The other aspect of people with disabilities 
is that we have to be more conscious about evacuation in buildings and and stadiums and so forth. So technology is surrounding us. Even with the new Echo, we're working with someone who, uh, his mother is 87 years old, going blind. He worked for Microsoft for 18 or 20 years. And I just talked to him on the phone five minutes ago. And he created through Echo and downloading all the stuff from the cloud so that his 87-year-old blind mother can have technology Incredible. That's a terrific story. And Tony, it's a great reminder that technology can divide us or bring us together or or help us. Columbia Lighthouse for the Blind is a great resource in the D.C. region. Thanks a lot for taking the time and talking with us today. Thank you. Just start a blog. It's something you hear more than once. The reality is it's not easy to start a blog, start a newsletter, get something off the ground and have it start to grow like crazy. Her next guest, Alicia Ramos, is the founder of Girls Night In. She has got the tiger by the tail and is growing a really, really exciting web property here in the D.C. region. So I'm going to talk with her about that today. Alicia, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Well, you know, (laughs) everybody talks about how everybody should just set up a business uh, using new technology. You're walking the walk. Tell us about (laughs) Girls Night In. Sure. So Girls Night In is a lifestyle brand and community that allows boss women to celebrate staying in instead of going out. Boss women? for For boss ladies everywhere. So currently, our first product is a weekly newsletter that goes out every Friday morning at 7 a.m. And it's kind of like a guide to your weekend if you're going to stay in rather than going out and partying. (laughs) (laughs) A binary choice I often face myself. (laughs) (laughs) So what caused you to decide to do this? You have a prior life as an entrepreneur. Were you Mm -hmm. a, a boss yourself? How did this happen? I hope to see myself as a boss woman now, especially. But I think that, you know, if I look at myself and who I am as a person, what I enjoy doing, I really love staying in. I'm a very introverted person. I like having that time alone to just think and recharge. And around me, I saw a lot of millennial women, especially have this social pressure to go out and party, especially if you're younger, maybe in your 20s or early 30s even. So I wanted to create a a safe space and supportive community that celebrates the act of staying in. And maybe you're on the couch watching Netflix and enjoying a glass of wine, and that's completely fine and that's completely normal. So it's been a a blast kind of growing that community. A number of years ago, I met Susan Cain, the author of a book called Quiet, who talks about the power of introversion. And I realized when I read the book that I was an introvert myself. I never really, I think many of us, many of us are. And by that, I mean, we draw our power from the time we spend on our own. Mm -hmm. So you, you decide, have this insight for yourself and you decide to start sharing it on the web, but it's exploding. What's that like? (laughs) I mean, you've got 10,000 people with a newsletter. You, you haven't been doing it very long. What, yeah. What's it like to actually have a business or not a blog? Your content just explode. And how's it, that 
feel? It's been incredibly rewarding, very surprising, definitely. When we started, um, it launched in February of 2017 at around 300 subscribers. And now about five months later, we're almost at 10,000 subscribers. And it's just the amount of engagement that we get every week is incredible. If you look at, I'm going to get a little nerdy with newsletter jargon, but if you look at our average open rate, um, it's 54% consistently, which is industry crushing. It's about five times industry average. And not only that, but we consistently get emails from our fans who say, I don't know who you are, but this is really amazing. It's everything I've ever been looking for. Describes me perfectly. Great job. We're getting job resumes every week now, which is really funny because I don't think most people realize that it's mostly just me behind the scenes running Girls Night In. Um, So it's been really exciting seeing it grow. So that's what's really interesting about the web, isn't it? That when you start putting content out there and people like it and newsletter grows, you just start punching above your weight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, I do have to say that I did have a little bit of a leg up in that my my background is in engineering and design. So I've I've worked in technology and media for about um, four four or five years. I used to work at Vox Media Mm -hmm. as a designer. So I kind of had a little bit of understanding of okay, what does it take to grow a digitally native editorial brand? So I had a little bit of that advantage. um, But a newsletter is a really great entry point for anyone, I think, to be able to get their point of view out there and create a dialogue with your fans. So as the media industry changed, you mentioned Vox is, I think, a great example of what I would say, you know, a large new media platform. And as a small business, which is really what you are and growing Mm -hmm. it, How does this become a business? Where does the revenue come from as you grow uh, content like this? That is the big question, isn't it? Um, That's that's a really big question that I'm reflecting on now because as a media, you know, having worked at a media company, I know how difficult it is to scale and properly monetize a media brand um, in the age of Facebook and other social platforms. It's you're kind of at the whims of their algorithms. So I've been kind of thinking about Girls Night In more as a community brand and an audience company. Um, And I can't say much more than that, but you may start seeing some products that we are developing uh, this fall. Well, I think that's really what I'm getting at. I've, I've invested in and helped launch a lot of internet and content businesses over the years. And I've had far too many young and older entrepreneurs say, oh, I'm going to make my money by selling ads. And the reality is that you can't grow a business on the internet just selling remainder ads. You have to have a focus and a reason yeah. for people to care. Yeah, exactly. It's it's really difficult, especially if you look at programmatic ads. I will say, though, that Girls Night In, um, we have gotten a lot of interest from brands who are very interested in our highly targeted and engaged audience of young millennial women. I think that's a very attractive market for a lot of these up and coming brands. So we are definitely looking at an editorial income stream or revenue stream, but maybe not as banner ads, but something a little more creative. I mean, ultimately, what I think you're showing is is that you have to, if you're going to try to grow a web business, you have to start with some content or passion for the content. Sounds to me like you really care about this. 
I do care about it. Our mission at Girls Night In is to help women take a break, relax, and recharge and support, uh, have a community of women who support that idea and celebrate that idea. And I think it's clearly um, resonating with a lot of young women, especially. If you had to do it again, <laughs> is there something you wish you'd done a little bit differently over the last three months? You know what? I don't think so. Because if I had done it differently, who knows what the outcome would have been. I put out a product that I'm a perfectionist and I put out a product that wasn't perfect, but that's okay because people still understand the meaning behind it and the mission behind it. And I think that that's been fine. So no. Go for it indeed. Alicia Ramos, <laughs> the founder of the newsletter Girls Night In, going to be doing some great things. It's been fun to watch your progress so far. And thanks for sharing with us this great story. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to What's Working in Washington. A special thanks to our sponsor, Eagle Bank. How do you get to be number one in the D.C. area? Eagle Bank did it by putting relationships first. They're flexible, involved, responsive, strong, and trusted. Eagle Bank's goal is your success. show is brought to you by Montgomery County Economic Development Corporation, MCEDC, helping companies start, grow, and accelerate business in Montgomery County. The future starts here. Go to thinkmoco.com today. We believe there's such a need for authentic information that's positive and useful. You know, there are many, many people here in the DC region who get up every day and just get after creating new things and are committed to making our community better. My producer Tracy Madigan and I speak with people every day that tell us amazing stories of, that they want to share about the progress they're making, the things that they care about, and why they're proud to be part of the greater Washington community. You're going to meet many of them on this show. That's what working in Washington really means to us. Now more than ever, I feel that a positive voice is needed in our society, our communities. We need to make sure that we reach each other and we work together. And we'll do our best to make sure that we're genuine and every show provides you with useful insights. Every week, we're going to bring topics that will keep you informed and engaged, and we hope will help you progress your business and your career. So don't forget to direct message us at, at What's Working DC if you've got a story idea. And do tell your friends to subscribe to the show on iTunes or Podcast One. And you know what? If you can take the time to rate our show, it'll help spread the word that this show is hitting an important chord for the entrepreneurial business community here in what you and I agree is one of the most interesting places to be an entrepreneur in the entire world. That's our show for this week. Our executive producer is Tracy Madigan. Our online contributors are Michael Hoffman, Barbara Ulrich, and Candace Pye. Music provided by two D.C. region bands, Two Car Living Room, and The Sunbathers. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington. Download this show or any of our weekly programs at federalnewsradio.com. What's Working in Washington, Monday afternoons at 2.30 on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 a.m.